Today we have a passage that is another warning against apostasy. This is, let me read Hebrews 10, 26 through 30, 31. 26 to 31, we won't get through that many verses, but I want us to see the whole argument before we just start one verse at a time. And it's a very, uh, how would you say, scary prospect here, but it's in the Scriptures. It says here, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, uh, these are verses most people don't have on their refrigerator. <laughs> but maybe we should have scared us. <laughs> But nevertheless, they're here for our benefit. (laughs) Let me explain the nature of the argument. Um, One of the most common Hebraic arguments is called from a lesser to greater. It can work both ways, either greater to lesser or lesser to greater. And it means, and it goes like this. If the lesser thing is true, how much more shall the greater thing be true? There are many examples of that, and it's a very Hebraic way of thinking. Let me give you a common one that most people have heard. The one where, if not a sparrow falls to the ground without your father's knowledge, how much more shall he care for you, all ye of little faith? So, lesser to greater. If God cares for the lesser thing, a sparrow, He certainly cares for the greater, a human being. Okay? Now, here is how that type of argument is being applied in the book of Hebrews. The lesser thing would be the Old Covenant. All right? The, um, the, verse 28, the one who set aside the law of Moses. So the lesser, the thing of lesser import, because the whole argument of Hebrews has been that we have a better covenant a better high priest, a better blood atonement, and so forth. Therefore, the lesser, the law of Moses, the old covenant, if under that covenant somebody transgresses it and defiantly rejects God and His law, they will be taken out and stoned after a trial with witnesses. So, if that's true, how much more? And that usually clues you in on when you have one of those... In the, there's a Latin word called a fortiori uh, argument. Um, when you see a phrase like how much more, that tells you that that's the kind of argument that you're getting. So, if we defy God under the old covenant, we die. 
how much worse would it be to defy God under the new covenant and to trample underfoot the blood of Christ? So this is a very stern, um, sobering warning against apostasy. And see, I have a few other comments. And I want us to get the big picture before we delve into the details. Otherwise, we're not getting it, learning it the way we should. In verse 29, it, it says, He has insulted the spirit of grace. Um, the Reformers taught that this is the nature of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is apostasy. And this passage would link insulting the Spirit with Jesus' warning against the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So, that, just keep that in the back of your mind. You may agree or disagree with that, but that's why, because of this passage right here. And because of the consequences are the same, because it says in, in these other passages, which we'll look up, that it will not be forgiven. This blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable sin. Here we have someone insulted the Holy Spirit. Any questions before we dig into verse 26? Okay. By the way, we're strictly against this. <laughs> In other words, this, yeah, we're against apostasy. <laughs> and uh, why? let me make one more comment. Why uh, the number one question that comes up when we study passages like this, and there are five warnings against apostasy in Hebrews, the number one question is, well, if we have a secure salvation in Christ, then these warnings aren't real. I mean, in other words, nobody could ever do this anyhow, so then what's the point of the warning? And my answer to that is God gives, does, gives warnings for good reasons, and it is to keep us from doing this in order to scare us into compliance by motivating his faithful ones. Yes. Yeah, and and we would, I, I wrote an article on this that you can look at, it, it's on Hebrews 6, which is another one of the warnings, but it's on the internet, it's called Hebrews 6, 1 through 6 on apostasy, yes. Okay, I've got uh, King James, I don't know if that makes any difference, but here it says if we willfully sin. Yeah, mine says that too. Continuing through the passage, I, I don't see the word apostasy, so... Are you interchanging apostasy with willfully sinning? Well, apostasy, the word apostasy is only used twice in the New Testament. And in Thessalonians, once in 2 Thessalonians 2 that I preached on a couple of weeks ago, and another time in Acts where Paul was accused of apostatizing from Moses, having left aside. But the concept is found many places. So I'm just using the word because it's the most common English word to describe a willful rejection of the faith. But we're going to talk about this sinning willfully. That idea comes out of the Old Testament. There's a distinction between defiant sin and unintentional sin. Okay? But I think that um, there are some that we certainly can see this applying to. What about people who say God's not going to tell me, I'm a Christian, but God's not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to be gay or I'm going to, I'm going to live any way I feel like and find a church to endorse it. Isn't that willful sin? Keith? Isn't the concept of willful sin ultimately hymned 
God commands everywhere, everyone everywhere to repent, if I willfully reject the gospel and willfully will not believe in the Christ that he sent, then it's the unforgivable sin because that's where God offers me salvation. If I reject that, there is no salvation someplace else. That's true. Uh, well, that's true, but here it's applied to people who supposedly had received it and would be tempted to, after having received the knowledge of the truth, go back on it. Go back to the Old Covenant. Go back to Moses. As if Moses were greater than Christ. Alright, let's go to verse 26. Maybe this will, as we dig into the verses, we'll get more light on this. Hebrews 10.26, For if we go on willing sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no, there remains, no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, let's first of all talk about the context. Last week we talked about verse 25, not forsaking our assembly together. So the author of Hebrews sees forsaking fellowship as a step toward apostasy. In other words, you're putting yourself in a situation where you may end up doing this if you forsake Christian assembly. He's not saying that it is apostasy, but he's saying it is putting yourself in a vulnerable position. Does that make sense? So that's why we should uh, not not, uh, forsake our assembling and consider how to stimulate one another's love and good deeds. Because God has placed in His means of grace that are His mitigating factors to keep us growing, to keep us from falling into sin, to keep us... um, progressing in the faith, and we need to avail ourselves of those. Why? Because if we go on sinning willfully, and to sin willfully means to show contempt for God, to treat God and His Word with contempt. After receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now this here, with the terminology used, would be saving truth, believing the truth, having embraced the Gospel, having come to God on His terms. I don't try to um, lessen this warning by saying this is only applied to people who really aren't saved. The warning is addressed to the church. And if you want proof of that, look at verse... uh, Well, right here, verse 26. If we go on sitting, the author of Hebrews includes himself in this. If anybody, whoever it may be, Who's a Christian? Um, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins. Why? Because there's only one sacrifice, and that one's been rejected. They're trampled underfoot, the blood of Christ. There's no other sacrifice. There's no other plan. There's nowhere else to go. There's no plan B. <laughs> plan A, repent and believe the gospel. Plan B, it's bad. It's Satan's plan. Um, I was going to quote Lane. Well, let me hand out some cross-references for people to look up here. Uh, where should we start? Dean, you look ready to go here. You're always ready. This is a good background passage, by the way. You know what? Let's all turn to it. Numbers 15, starting with verse 28. I want us all to look at this. The back, Numbers 15, 28. 
This is, I think, necessary to understand. I'm going to actually start with verse 22, Numbers 15. I think if we understand Numbers 15, then we can understand Hebrews 10. Yep, I'm going to start with 22. I, uh, I had a hard time understanding this until one time I wrote that paper on it at seminary and I published that. I found this thing in Numbers 15 and then it all made sense to me. There's a difference between defiance and someone who says, yes, I want to serve God and obey God, but falls into sin. There's a difference. All right, here it is. Number 1522, but when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord spoke to Moses. Notice it says when. All right. And not if. In other words, you are going to need the Day of Atonement, Moses is saying. Well, the New American Standard's better. <laughs> I'm in trouble with Lois now. <laughs> All right, well, the King James says if. It says when here in the New American Standard. So this is a revised, okay. But when or if you unwittingly fail and do not observe these commandments which the Lord spoke to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave commandment onward through your generations, then it shall be if it is done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering and a soothing aroma to the Lord. Uh, verse 25. Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation and, all, and the sons of Israel, and they shall be forgiven. It was an error. They brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among them, for it happened to all the people through air. Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female gold as a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, but for him who is native among the sons of Israel... And for the alien who sojourns among them, but the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord and shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord, has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off and his guilt shall be on him. So there is forgiveness for unintentional sins. And no, no forgiveness for defiant sins. That's the distinction. Now, I would say that unintentional doesn't mean a person is not guilty or they didn't, they, they weren't willf, they didn't have a will to sin. Yes, they did, but they've agreed with God's commandments. Here's, here's how it works. This person says, I agree with the Ten Commandments. I agree with the law of Moses. I agree that God's law is good and holy. And in agreement, I went out and I didn't live up to it. I fell short and I sinned. And so on the Day of Atonement, I come with my offering saying, I admit I've sinned. I've fallen short and I need the blood atonement. Okay? The other person says, 
I have a right to do I'm not going to have this man rule over me. I'm not going to obey these laws. I'm going to do whatever I see fit. And if you don't like it, then you're just too strict. Exactly. You can't do this. Church discipline. So, this defiant sin is called in Deuteronomy 15 and verse 30. Notice what it's called? Blasphemy. Because it is telling God that He has no right to be the lawgiver. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm willing to stop for discussion on this. Yes. In your debate, I'm the one saying Oh, I don't remember, but I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, Greg Boyd, who was there another debate I wasn't in? Mine was about election and predestination. I don't know if we even got into the perseverance one. Was there? No, there was another debate. I think you're mixing it up. Yeah, because I wasn't in that one particularly. And I don't use the term once saved, always saved, because it sounds too flippant. I would talk about the perseverance of the saints. That God preserves us, not that just uh, you say, you say, gee, I believe in Jesus, then you go out and live like the devil and you're saved. Okay. I'm going to put myself on the line here, but defiant sin is doing something that you know is wrong. And I see myself doing that frequently. Uh, ignorant. Sin is doing something wrong and you're not aware of it. That's what we've talked about so far. I'm, that's a different distinction than I'm making. All right? I believe that what the difference between unintentionally and defiant is whether or not a person will submit to the law of God. It's willingly. In other words, someone to say, yes, God's law is true and right, I accept it. And by God's grace, I'll live up to it. All right, but even having said that, we sin, and it's not that our will isn't involved, but we've said, "Yes, Lord, I won't ever whatever it is I'm not going to do," and yet, at a bad moment, I do it anyhow. Right. I, I see myself doing that all the time. Yeah, and to me, that's willful. But I, w- I wouldn't call it defiant unless you're telling God that you don't even believe it's sin or that you don't want to have well, it changed. All right, well, you're on the right side of it then. That's not blasphemy. <laughs> yeah, that's not blasphemy. Blasphemy, to me, blasphemers are the people out here claiming the moral right to live as homosexuals. I think that's blasphemy because you're telling God you have no right to tell him. Yes. It's like take the people who take it and say, well, my God is loving God, so he wouldn't send everyone to hell. And so they're only taking part of God and they're making it their own gospel or their own way of getting to God. God loves me. He needs me. So there's nothing I need to do except have a relationship with him. When in, in, in truth, you have to repent and trust in him. And he does the work in you. It's nothing you do. So it's setting you up your own way to him. And you may call yourself a Christian. Lots of people do. But they haven't gone on his road. They have they haven't come on his terms. I was visiting my mom down in Tucson a few years ago, and we went to church, and it was a Methodist church, and the pastor 
got up and she said this, God doesn't judge sin. Yes. And I, uh, my wife could see me sitting there. She goes, tss, tss. Show some respect. I mean, I just was boiling. God doesn't judge sin. Can you, do you imagine the mockery that that makes of the gospel? And then why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, she was she was preaching from John, and she was trying to get people not to feel bad about themselves. And you know, uh, you know, don't you're a good person, and God loves you the way you are. And it was kind of that sort of a message. And then to help give people more assurance, she said, "God doesn't judge sins." I'm telling you, the the Christian world has really lost track of the law and the gospel. Alright? And there's nothing wrong with this law because it shows us our need for the gospel. Now, here's what... Oh, I just got a phone call from somebody this last week who um, was talking... Who, who basically went to... This couple was in this evangelical church and the church was embracing or allowing or winking at immorality. And not only just... The way people were generally living, they're saying, "Yeah, we went on our, uh, we went on our vacation to a, a nude resort, you know, talking this kind of stuff in church and, and stuff, stuff like that." I don't even want to repeat it all. And she went to the elders and said, "We're not holding up God's standards here." And they said to her, the pastor said to her, "Well, you're just too judgmental. You're a Pharisee." And take the log out of your eye first, and you know, blah blah blah. And then the next, and then in church, the, the 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 sermon directed at this lady, which was obvious, was some people are just too judgmental, and they're holier than thou, and they think they've got it all together, and they're just a bunch of Pharisees, and we want to be non-judgmental and open-minded. So she called me and, and said, "Well, I'm resigning from the church, but I, you know, is that right? Am I being too strict?" And so, not, what does it mean to be a Pharisee? Well, what is what would that mean? Yeah, Dean. I've, I've struggled with that for quite some time because I know people that, quite a few people that have a tendency to lean in that direction. And you, I hear a lot on the radio all the time. But it isn't necessarily, necessarily being biblical and encouraging people to follow biblical standards. To me, a Pharisee is a person that attaches a work to salvation. Okay. Key. Well, I think that the concept all the way through Matthew was that the Pharisees were legalistic to their own laws, setting aside God's laws. Jesus said, it's not me that will accuse you. Moses will accuse you of not following Moses' laws, and you will die before Moses. I don't have to say anything because already, regarding Mosaic law, you have set it aside according to your own traditions. The Pharisees weren't following the law too well. They were making their own laws and setting aside God's mm-hmm. laws. And even here in this passage, the lesser the greater argument and the things that you're saying, in the church you say, I don't condemn you. Moses will condemn you. If you fall before Moses, who says if you commit adultery physically, you will die to death, how much more 
please fall before Jesus, when that law of Moses really means, if you even lust in your heart, you're going to die to death. So it's a lesser to greater that way, too. If your own external actions can't even live up to the law, and you die death, how much more so when God who sees the heart is going to judge that, too? You know, um, upholding the law doesn't make one a Pharisee unless you assume that somehow you're going to keep it by your own effort. And what we're talking about is the need for a blood atonement, right? right? And what it says here in Hebrews and what it said in Numbers is that we do need a blood atonement. And if we admit that we need a blood atonement, that's good. But if we say, I have a right to do as I see fit, I don't even need atonement. God doesn't judge sin, like that pastor said. God doesn't judge sin. Well, then what do I, then what do I have? Well, what it says here, certain terrifying expectation of judgment, because God does judge sin. Now, what about the fellowship that's a little too lax? Well, we need church discipline. It isn't pharisaical to have church discipline, because it says encourage one another, doesn't it? Provoke one another to love and good works. So, that pastor and those elders could very well have said, you know, we agree with you that this isn't up to biblical standards. It isn't, we don't want to be Pharisees, we don't want to be judgmental, but we want to help these people grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And, to, and to, to do things God's way. And so it, it's not an unloving or harsh or judgmental thing to have church discipline. Does that make sense? Yes, Mike. Well, I mean, if you can draw a distinction between the Pharisee and the tax collector, when the Pharisee has spiritual pride and the tax collector uh, was acknowledging this and asking for forgiveness. So there's a difference there. Uh, and, and actually the tax collector is upholding the law better than the Pharisee because he's acknowledging his sin and he's acknowledging that he has failed the standard. Yeah. So when, when you acknowledge that you fail the standard, you uphold that standard. And when you when you say that when and they condemn the Pharisee for saying, you know, you know, thank you, God, because I am not this, I am not that. When in reality, he was worse than the tax collector because he wouldn't acknowledge his sin and he wouldn't uphold the law. That, you know, that gives me a great, great point, Mike. That gives me an idea. Let's think about the lady that called who was in this dilemma. When she went to the elders of the pastor to say they didn't, she didn't think it was right that there was no church discipline. And, I, and I, I, I believe this was her heart. What she's saying is not that I'm holier than these people. What she's saying is I'm just as likely to be tempted to do the same thing. But I know it's a sin and I don't want to be tempted. And if this is what goes on in our fellowship, it's going to put me under temptation. Because I'm a sinner. And so therefore, I think we need to uphold a biblical standard to help us all. Me included. Does that make sense? Um, and that's not saying, hey, I'm better than you, because I could just as likely fall into the same thing, but I don't want to. And if somebody doesn't tell me it's wrong, I'm, I'm likely to. Okay. And when the 
Okay. Uh, Bert? Okay. Uh, I don't think you can address the question of the blasphemer that later repents. Okay. Uh, Bert asked the question. I'm going to so this gets on the tape. Um, what about the blasphemer who repents? According to the warning here in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, and elsewhere, these people... If, they, if, they're, if this is a real category, ended up, will not repent. There remains, therefore, no sacrifice. They will not repent. They permanently will stay in this condition. Well, if they do repent, then obviously they hadn't done this. Let me refer you to Hebrews 6. Okay, let's, let's look at that. It's been a few months since we were on this. It says in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them to re- again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. That's a very parallel passage to Hebrews 10, where it says they've insulted the Spirit of grace, trodden underfoot the blood of the covenant. Now, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, but I'm persuaded of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. In, in my article on this, I called this an unactualized theoretical possibility. See, now you know why I'll go to seminary, right? So you can actually say things like that and not be looking. <laughs> but uh, complicated idea. But the idea basically is that this is a very real warning that we should take to heart. But that God will cause the warning to be effectual and to, in order to preserve us from this. God will use the warning to scare us away from doing this. That's what I claim. And another way of looking at what Bert said, we don't, God in his foreknowledge knows who that's true of. If I blaspheme because I think I can, I'm going to repent next week. And then I have an an act-car accident and all the chips are counted. I fall into that category that God knew Initially, because I fall into that, whereas if he gave me another week, maybe I wouldn't, but it's beyond my knowledge. Well, another way to look at it would be the difference between Peter and Judas, right? Peter um, denied his Lord, but he was brought to repentance. Judas denied his Lord, and He he had remorse, but not true heartfelt repentance. Okay. Yes. I was going to just say there is a guy who's a leader in my um, program, and he's out of the NBA, but he still helps them with their parade. Okay. Well, when you talked about uh, that lady about God not judging, not judging sin, I think. We find a lot in, in, the, in the liberal church, many churches, that they try to lower the bar of perfection, of 
the Bible says, be perfect as I am perfect. Right. I don't believe God intended for the bar to be lowered because once you lower the bar, it makes it almost attainable for man. Yeah, that's a good and point. It makes it a work. It yeah. makes it a work. Yeah. And it just totally messes up the work Christ did. It takes away the sting of the law that leads us to, to the blood atonement. See, the whole thing in the Old Testament was they, they had to go and say, I need this blood atonement. Right? If you said you didn't need it, you're being defiant. And so why lower the bar? Let's just leave it right where it is. Be perfect. Well, I guess I need the blood, don't you? <laughs> exactly. I was just reading about that. Yes, Diane. But by the grace of God, there go I, a Denise. When you bring up scripture to a person like that, they actually get angry at you. And it's very hard to even discuss what the Bible says with them. They often quote the Bible and, and talk about what they think God says instead of what the Bible says. Yeah, see, liberalism is such an insidious thing. I got some really disturbing news this week. Uh, somebody called to talk to Carl, who uh, had disturb- more disturbing news about my where I graduated from the seminary that's gone, even since 99, gone more liberal than Bethel. Well, I got a, I got a, I got a, we got a call from somebody who just graduated, and evidently the new, the New Testament professor that Ryan and I had, who was fantastic, he had a powerful impact on both of us in our ability to preach exegetically, he died of pancreatic cancer at a fairly young age. Well, the person who they finally, from the information we just got this week, from somebody just graduating, said the person they hired to replace him is teaching basically salvation is about planetary salvation, not personal salvation. We like this uh, Brian McLaren that I just wrote about. And so everything's good. This is the same thing I heard when I was in the liberal church in the 50s. And I, and I really, I don't think that it's being overly dramatic to say that our evangelical movement is turning into another version of liberalism. And it's, it's really, what's, what's so insidious about it is that where are you going to find salvation? I don't understand how they think people are going to actually be redeemed if they get this idea that salvation isn't about my personal sin, that's an affront to God, and that I need a blood atonement. If salvation is making the world a better place to live in, how's that salvation? The world is not that great, and I don't think we're going to save it. Yes. Salvation in the Lutheran Church uh, from a pastor, not from a pastor, but where the pastor 
Yeah, if there's enough content, Doug, I would agree. And I, I wrote an article about this, that even if you could have a totally liberal church with a liberal pastor that doesn't believe much of anything, but somebody could be sitting in that church and they could be singing an old hymn that actually has the gospel in it. I mean, God can work if there's any light whatsoever. But what I said in my article is, nevertheless, if you're a pastor and if you're responsible for a congregation or a group of elders, our job is to not make it liberal because God might work anyhow. Our job is to get as much light. Okay, the more gospel, the more light of, of the Holy Spirit that through the Word, the more mitigating influence against our own tendency to sin, the more called to repent and believe the gospel. Because then the more we do that, the more the church will become what God intended it to be. And so, God might use something, is true, but um, it doesn't mean this pastor who says God doesn't judge sins isn't in trouble. Yes? Do you think that once you understand the gospel, you'll want to get out of the church? I would think so, yeah. You did. I truly understand that gospel, yeah. Doris and I have run into experience where we've been in churches like that. And we finally realized that we just had to get out. I know, once, once you know the Lord, you're not satisfied with Ladies Home Journal, even if Rick Warren writes in it. Right? <laughs> I was going to quote William Lane here. Here, this is telling about this context uh, from the gathering together. The neglect of God's gift is almost tantamount to a decisive rejection of them. In this instance, the neglect of the meetings of the local assembly actually displayed a contemptuous disregard for the truth, which exposes hardened offenders to divine judgment. So that's how we pull in the context, all right? So we shouldn't neglect God's gift because we might get hardened if we do. Now, uh, let's get to these cross-references. Deuteronomy 17.12. Um, Dean, Brian, Psalm 19.12 and 13. Uh, you want to do one, Tammy? Sure. All right. Uh, 1 John 5.16. And Denise, Matthew 12.31 and 32. Yeah, Matthew 12.31 and 32. Okay, Deuteronomy 17.12. And will not hearken unto the priest that standeth to minister there before the Lord thy God, 
or unto the judge, even that man shall die, and thou shalt put away the evil from Israel. So there's the same idea. Notice how what it says, he won't listen. Won't listen to whoever, God, the judge, Moses, anybody. You want to hear about it? Uh, Psalm 19, 12, and 13, Brian. Who can discern his lapses and errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be blameless, and I shall be innocent and clear of great transgression. Well, it's the same idea, isn't it? Yeah. May the Lord keep me from defiant sin. Okay, uh, Matthew 12, 31, 32. No, excuse me, 1 John 5, 16. Sorry, Tammy. I'm trying to confuse you. 1 John 5, 16. Wow. There's a sin leading to death. I don't say you should pray for that. And I always wonder when I read that verse, how would you know though? I mean, it's in the Bible. So then, I don't know. It would be kind of hard to apply that passage, wouldn't it? I think we just need to know that maybe there are sins leading to death that our prayers, no matter how much we pray, may not change anything. Just for fun, sometimes that I'm there, just to you know tell me how weak I am as a Christian. But I'm still not going to give up on him. I, I don't know what what's in his heart. I mean, what's evident is that he's presently a sinner in yeah. need of God's grace. But I'm, I'm not going to give up. I don't well, know. If, if well, you don't know. Remember that? Did you go see Stephen Bennett when he spoke at Jan's conference a while back? Outstanding testimony. There's a guy who was like that that got saved. Why would you do that? Because then, then they would lead to life. It would, it, that, pray for them and their sins. Pray for them that they would be saved with their sin almost to accomplish that thing. I never understood it that way. So that I, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to bring them back to the gospel and preach the gospel and pray for them in the gospel. And not, not that the Ekinkaris or somebody else can, you know, that God leads them in that. I don't know. I, I think, I, as I understood the passage, I think what John was saying is if you have an apostate blasphemer, you're not obligated to pray for them. I don't know. I mean, I'm just, we just read the verse. I'm not claiming to be an infallible interpreter of it. <laughs> okay. I just, you know, I think it's a difficult passage, however you look at it. Okay. The first, the first part of that was talking about synonym or inerrant or covenant. Yeah. But in previous scriptures, it was inerrant and pray for that. But if somebody is is leading to death in apostasy or willful sinning against against the Lord, then he's he's already judged. 
Okay, so, all right, I think this, I don't know what else to do with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's in First Corinthians 5. Maybe that's the same idea. In other words, well, maybe that's sort of what Keith is saying. Turn them over, let them go do it, and God will use that to bring them back. Don't don't try to mitigate it. Okay, that makes sense. That's a good cross reference. <laughs> Maybe God will use that if they don't want to listen and let them go the whole way. Well, you know, parents will do that uh, ultimately. Where if you have a rebellious child and you and you intervene and you try to preserve them from their own sin and you try to shield them and try to put some law and try to get them in at midnight so they're not out there even though they crawl out the window at two in the morning and go anyhow. Um, any, uh, it, it, but there gets, I know there gets to be a point eventually where, you know what? I've been banging my head against this wall for years trying to preserve this person from worse sin. And all it's doing is making me miserable and it's not changing them. So, go. Bye. I did my best. The prodigal. Yep. All right. Come back when the devils beat you up for a while. When you really want to be prayed for, and then I'll deal with it. That does work. I've seen that work. And the person actually comes back later and say, you know, you were right. And it ties this together. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Thanks, Mike. Yes. Sixth one? Mm-hmm. Honor your father and mother? No, Fourth. Okay, you know better than I do. What, what's the sixth one then? Um, I don't remember what it is, but it has something to do with, with um, God leading them to their own. All right, quick Bible quiz. Which one's the sixth? Which one? Adultery. Don't commit adultery. Uh, I don't know. I don't, that's a bad thing to do. Matthew 12, 31, 32, uh, Denise. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, will be forgiven them, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven them. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Wow. The question was, what's the difference between the Son of Man and the Holy Spirit? To me, they were just as. Well, there's a link. There's certainly a link there because they were saying Jesus was full of Beelzebub, or by the power of Beelzebub, and when he was actually up, he actually see the Holy Spirit. The Christ is the Anointed One, okay, and so. There's a strong link between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He's the one anointed of the Spirit. But by rejecting that truth of Jesus being the anointed one, they're rejecting Christ. I I don't know. That, that passage just is a real encouragement with my, with my neighbor now because it is every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. Except, except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So even though he blasphemes the Lord now, 
that can be forgiven. But there is a link, like Denise says, though, because if you look at Hebrews 10.29, the one who tramples underfoot the blood of the covenant is insulted the spirit of grace. So there is a link there to blaspheming the spirit. Uh, yes. Well, it's certainly it's a it's a, a rebellion against God's moral law. That's for sure. Um, you know, the way we are preserved from being Pharisees is by admitting that we're sinners and saying, "But by the grace of God, there go I." And it doesn't. Not another way to think of it is just we can't comfort ourselves by finding a worse sinner and saying, "At least I'm not that bad." Okay, <laughs> because how do I know? Maybe I've been given a lot more light than somebody else, and whatever it is I'm doing, I'm more guilty before God because I could have done better. All I know is I need Jesus, and I need to be forgiven, and I need the restraining influence of the Word of God and the Christian brothers and sisters, and I need to walk. What does it say? If someone's overtaken an air, you either a spiritual Correct that you want in spirit of meekness, taking heed lest you also be tempted. Always, yeah, I think we should take this seriously. Take the log out of our eye, all of that stuff. But having said that, nevertheless, we're as a Christian community agreeing that God's law is right. Okay? And we're agreeing together that we need help by God's grace and that we need the gospel. That's what I believe the book of Hebrews envisions. A body of people to together encourage one another uh, even bring church discipline if necessary. We, we, we may encourage or correct or admonish or whatever we need, but together we're going to walk this out by God's grace. If we're, over, if we're overcome with a sin, then God will help us. But we're going to agree with God on the matter. That's what it says. And the warning is that the neglect of God's gifts can lead to apostasy, so don't neglect the gifts. A group that doesn't want to see people fall into sin would continually bring the Word of God out there. You know, another danger is this therapeutic gospel. And that's what I saw coming into the seminary, is that the idea is that these things aren't sins, they're sicknesses. Right? And that you need to hire a very expensive therapist or a whole fleet of therapists to be in the church because you can't expect people to get over things because they're caused by somebody else did something wrong. Or they went through a traumatic experience. Or this happened and that happened. I heard that continually. And here's the thing. I don't care if you hire the best therapist that ever existed. If you had, uh, you know, they were alive. Freud, Jung, Maslow, Rogers, Skinner, and the whole works of them on your church staff. You can't get anybody delivered from sin. Amen. <laughs> okay. Because only the blood of Jesus will do that. But they turn the church into this therapeutic community rather than a redemptive community. And, and the fact is, it just gets worse because there's no grace in this therapy. Therapy doesn't overcome sins. All right, Hebrews 10.27. we got five minutes here. Let's get this one started. Now, it says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but what? A certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
Have you heard people make a mockery of so-called hellfire and brimstone preaching? We don't want any of this hellfire and brimstone preaching. Well, I'll tell you what, you better just get your razor out and start cutting through your Bible. And one of the things you better take out are the words of Jesus. Because He had this. And here it is right in front of us. And the warnings are are here because there's a reality behind this. This isn't a myth. Hell is not a myth made up by Dante. I once, uh, I once said in, a, in one of my writings, hell is the most talked about place ever deemed not to exist. Uh, people say they don't believe in it, but they tell their friends to go there. Hmm? <laughs> you better get Jesus or you're going to hell. Well, there you go. Very clear. <laughs> Did he like it? No, I didn't. But when I got into that liberal church, that was still in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think that it's in the back of people's hearts. I, one of the more touching things when I was at Here's why it's such a shame at the seminary. One of the guys who's being who's retiring is Dr. Brooks, being replaced by these planetary salvation people. Dr. Brooks probably in his 70s now, but Ryan and I were in his class. Were you in the time when he tearfully told us the story of his conversion? That was amazing. Here's this guy that was very brilliant, and we agreed with him most of the time on his theology, but he was kind of bland. This, you know, read out of his notes, and he wasn't a very dynamic guy, but he was solid theologically. We were studying Revelation, and we got to the part about hell and the lake of fire in Revelation. And all of a sudden, this stoic professor, I think we were in class together, set his notes down, and he told us, he said, you know, a lot of people would never preach on this anymore. He said, but I'm glad that it happened. He said, when I was a young man, what did he say, like in the 30s? He was a young man back in the 1930s, and he was listening to the radio. This was for TV. And there was an old Baptist preacher of some sort on the radio preaching on revelation about the lake of fire. And this preacher preached that this is a literal place where you will go if you don't turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Dr. Brooks, before he was doctor, he was just a young man, Brooks, heard that, believed it, and was converted. And uh, I, I thought it was an amazing story. And, he, and this guy says, don't be ashamed to preach everything that's in the Bible because God used that to save me. And some people think it's not an appropriate topic anymore. So he was listening to the radio and heard this old preacher telling about the lake of fire. And he came to Jesus. And he went on and got a Ph.D. in New Testament studies and spent his life teaching the Bible. So, there's only one sacrifice, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. And if we don't care for that, and we don't want to believe that, and we don't want to come to Him on His terms, there is no other sacrifice. And according to this clear teaching of Scripture, the result of rejecting that sacrifice is a fury of fire which will consume his adversaries. That's the cold, sober facts. 
And you know what? The fear of God is not a bad thing. Yes, Mike. It's a, you know, fire is also linked to God's own presence in nature. And to come into God's presence without the proper righteousness, just that itself would destroy you. You couldn't bear to be in His presence. So, yeah, so we use a refiner's fire, it purifies the sons of Levi. So the fire of God will purify the redeemed and destroy those without covering. So, quick. Yeah, that's a good illustration. <laughs> well, may the Lord commend His gospel to us as, as we encourage one another in the faith. And this morning, the sermon will be from Genesis chapter 26. We have a time of fellowship, and then we'll see you upstairs. God bless.